0: Hello, my name is Nikki, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and be glad in my people, for no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his stays. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: Hi, my name is Matt. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 21, 1-6 through 6 in the ESV. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Brian.
2: Thank you for standing for the Gospel reading. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died,
3: Sorry, the gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes that above all we would see Jesus today. And would you open our ears that above all we would hear your word speaking to us. And would you open our hearts because we don't just want to learn or be informed, we want to be transformed and changed today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Everyone said Amen. You may be seated. What are you looking forward to? What are you looking forward to? What are you waiting for? Fall break, someone said. Uh, Maybe colder weather where you can rock those new scarves and boots and sweaters and cardigans. Maybe you're waiting for Thanksgiving, you're already thinking about that in the holidays, you're thinking of Starbucks' red cups, you know. Maybe you're thinking about Christmas, maybe you got plans, maybe you're waiting for the first snow. Um, Maybe there's something beyond that. I don't know if this is your experience, but very often when we are waiting for something and then when we get there, it's somehow less than what we had hoped it to be. And you finally get to fall break and you're like, well, that wasn't very restful, Ah, oh, Christmas break, and then you get there, and that was even more stressful, like spring break, that's going to be it, right? And, and there's this sense of everything you're waiting for when you get there ends up being less than what you hoped for. And there's something in us as human beings, maybe because God has made us this way, that we are always leaning forward. We're always kind of yearning, looking ahead, longing for, waiting for, The psychologist Charles Snyder talks about hope as a positive motivational state. It's the state of being that is positive, it's upward, but it's also motivational. Hope is the thing that gets us up out of bed in the morning, says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to accomplish this, I believe something can be different, therefore I'm going to give myself to it. That's not a bad way to think about hope. If we were to kind of break it down a little bit more, we might say hope has a what, There's a goal to hope. What are you hoping for? There's an object to hope. But it doesn't just have a what, it also has a who and a how. So you might be hoping, the object of your hope, your what, is a great Christmas vacation in the mountains, but the who is going to pay for it is a bit troubling, and the how you're going to save up money for it is even more troubling. So you may have a great what. But if you don't have the right who and how, there isn't yet hope. Hope must have a a what, a who, and a how. What is Christian hope? What is Christian hope? Hope that puts us on the edge of our seats, leaning and looking beyond this life. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is heaven. Oh, Christian hope is heaven. It's the thing that we're looking forward to. But heaven kind of has gotten a bad rap right? And so, and so heaven in sort of our world's um, imagining is, well, you listen, they, they look at us and they say, you religious people, heaven is just a screen onto which you project all of your desires and fantasies. That's all heaven is. It's not real. It's just something you project onto. It's a screen onto which you project. Well, certainly that's been part of it. <laughs> Certainly, that's been part of how Christians have talked about heaven. They have projected their own images onto the screen and said, oh, this is what I think it's going to be like. It's really fun to look at uh, American literature, um, and there's a, whole, there's a lot of, of stuff that has been written to say, look at how heaven has been talked about in films and movies and novels. I'm just going to pick two out of the loads of examples, two that maybe stand out because the authors are such literary giants in American fiction history. Mark Twain. Mark Twain, you remember the scene when Huck Finn is, is being lectured to about heaven and hell? Actually, the, the lecture begins with a talk about hell and how he's probably going. And Twain continues, but now she had got a good start and she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was to go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. But I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there and she said not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. (laughs) Huck Finn said, look, if heaven's like that, I don't want it. You can keep it. Fast forward a couple of decades, you got the great novelist, short story writer, Ernest Hemingway. Now, this comes from Hemingway's personal letter to his buddy, F. Scott Fitzgerald. So it's a little bit saucy. <laughs> Hemingway says, to me, to me, a heaven would be a big bull ring, with me holding two Barrera seats and a trout stream outside that no one else was allowed to fish in. You're like, all right, Hemingway, I'm with you, man. And two lovely houses in town. Why two? One where I would have my wife and children and be monogamous and love them truly and well. And on the other, I would have my nine beautiful mistresses on nine different floors. Okay, (laughs) Ernest. And then there would be a fine church like the one in Pamplona where I could go and be confessed of my sins on the way from one house to the other. And I would get on my horse and ride out with my son to my bull ranch named Hacienda Hudley and toss coins to all my illegitimate children that line the road. <laughs> Thank you, Hemingway. Ever colorful in his imagination. And so heaven has only become this thing that doesn't really inspire hope, it just becomes a joke, it becomes a screen to project our own desires. What is Christian hope? This picture is a picture of Durham Cathedral in England, and I was, I was there last month, earlier, early in the month of September, and the lighting doesn't reflect it, it's probably been edited a bit for the screen, but the picture as it looks on my phone will show that it's really the early hours of the morning. It was about 7.30 in the morning, and I was huffing and puffing with my luggage along these cobblestone streets, which are all lovely and quaint until you have to drag luggage across them. And I was trying to make my way to the bus stop to catch a bus to get to the train station to take the train back down to London so I could get to the airport and not miss my flight. And I needed to start early, but I stopped that morning because just the way the sun was rising on a new day, casting its light on this thousand-year-old cathedral, This cathedral was built somewhere in the Tens. Norman architecture, if you're into that, you'll know the inside of it has the braided stone. It's an amazing architectural feat. One of the oldest cathedrals in England. And in front of it are gravestones. The cathedral itself was built originally as something of a shrine for two saints, St. Bede and St. Cuthbert. And there's legends about those two men. And so their their bodies were first enshrined in this cathedral. Now all that seems really odd to us. Step one: if you're gonna build a church, don't also bury people under it, right? And secondly, if you're gonna bury more people, don't put it right in the front lawn. That's not very secret sensitive. Welcome to church. Did you enjoy the cemetery on your way in? She seems a little odd. But see, for Christians throughout the century, the cemetery was not a statement about the finality of life. The cemetery was a signpost of Christian hope. It said, look, every time you come and worship, you've got to walk through the Alumni Association because you've got to be reminded that we're part of a great company of saints and that we're all awaiting something greater, something better. So the grave wasn't bad news. It was really a signpost of hope. But I suspect that we've lost a bit of that today. I suspect that for us, Christian hope, if it exists, is anemic. It's narrow. It's impoverished. It's small. And that may be no fault of yours. That might be the fault of my profession. It might be the fault of all of our churches together saying, we're not really sure what historic, robust, robust, creedal hope really is, we just talk about this. And so this morning in the final piece of our series on the Nicene Creed, it is my great joy to talk to you about creedal Christian hope. What was the Christian hope from the earliest of centuries? This whole journey through the Nicene Creed has been about saying, what's the core of Christian faith? You'll recall that we've said each week that the creed was written in the Council of Nicaea in 325, but they weren't making up these phrases. They were drawing from New Testament letters, they were drawing from the teaching of the apostles that had been faithfully preserved and passed down, and they were formalizing it to prevent heresies from springing up throughout the region, to say, look, you can't say that, you can't say that. And they get to the end of it and they say, okay, how are we going to talk about hope? And they come up with this sentence. Let's read it together. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, right away, you notice that the verb is different. So far, we've said we believe, we believe, we believe. In fact, the series is called We Believe In because of that. Last week was the first different verb. It said we confess one baptism. Today is a different verb altogether. We look. Now, even though I took Greek in seminary, it's only just enough to be dangerous. So I wanted to make sure I was doing this right, and I emailed my Greek professor this week, and I said, here's the original sentence of the creed in Greek. This is how I would translate it. How would you? And he says, you're close. But here's... And he says, look, this word, we look, is about expectation." It's about a a forward orientation. It's about leaning forward. We look. It's the same kind of verb that's used in the Gospels when they're they're hearing the news and they say, look, we're wondering, is this Jesus the Messiah or should we look for another? And they say, you tell them the blind see, the lame walk. You tell them it's here. We look for the resurrection of the dead. There are two elements of creedal Christian hope, classic, historic, robust Christian hope. And I hope to just skim the surface of them this morning and maybe whet your appetite for more study on it. Two elements of Christian hope. The first is bodily resurrection. The second is the world to come. Let's take them one by one. What do we mean by the resurrection of the dead? The only person who has experienced bodily resurrection is Jesus. Now you're going to say, well, what about Lazarus? Lazarus was resuscitated. He came back to life. But he came back to his old body. Jesus is the only one who experienced what the Bible calls resurrection, bodily resurrection. So everything we know about our future bodily resurrection, we learn by listening to the stories of Jesus' bodily resurrection. And when you look at those stories, you notice some different things. He seems to have the same kind of physical body. It's a body that eats and drinks. Remember, he has breakfast on the beach. It's a body that has scars that they can touch. There's some kind of continuity from his old body. It wasn't like he left a shell in the tomb and God gave him sort of the Iron Man suit 2.0. You know? No, God took the original body and transformed it. That's why the tomb was empty It didn't have like snake skin in there, you know what I mean? Like the shedded layer of skin, and he just got something new. No, no, no. That same body was transformed. That's why there's scars. The resurrection that we're looking for, bodily resurrection, is about this body being transformed. Transformed and I say, wait a minute, Glenn, I, I, I've, I've just sort of thought that this is about the soul slipping away into heaven. Is that what you mean by resurrection? It's just a metaphor for the soul slipping away? No, the New Testament is emphatically clear. And we're not talking about the Greek idea of the soul slipping away. We're talking about the very Jewish idea of a material body being remade. Very unique Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Now, Paul's going to spell this out in timeline. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming. Somebody say, at his coming. Those who belong to Christ. So, when do those who belong to Christ receive bodily, resurrected bodies? At His coming. So not when they die. No. Okay. So let's keep going. So, what do we talk? What are these bodies like? Verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You're like, Yes, Paul. Tell me. You foolish person, he says. Sorry. <laughs> what use I set you up for that. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And then he goes on and uses this poetic language. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. The body that dies is a perishable body. But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, it's this English translation of those phrases, natural body, physical body, and spiritual body that trips us up. When we read that and you say, oh, spiritual body, you you think Ghostbusters. You think like the kind of translucent, you know, I've got a spiritual body. But that's not the body that Jesus had after the resurrection. So what does Paul mean? Because he's very clearly in this whole chapter drawing the pattern between our future resurrection body and Jesus's. When you look at these phrases, both Scott McKnight, N.T. Wright, other New Testament scholars have parsed this out and said, look, here's what's kind of been kept in the world of, of seminary and not made its way into the world of the church. That these phrases actually mean the physical body is the body that is powered by the soul. Psychotikos versus the spiritual body, the body that is powered by the Spirit, pneumaticos. There is this sense in which what Paul is saying, you have a body right now that is a shell that is given its fuel by the soul. And so it's perishable. But you're going, that very body will be transformed to be a body that is powered by the Spirit. And that body is imperishable. Now this may be the first time some of you might be hearing this but it's not the first time the church has taught this. It's the very reason those gravestones outside Durham Cathedral and indeed every Christian seminary face east. Because long standing Christian tradition is he shall appear on the eastern sky and the dead in Christ shall rise. And so they face east so that I mean you picture this I mean this is like the Michael Jackson Thriller video you know <laughs> except not zombies. You're saying, what? we believe in this? <laughs> we believe that at Christ's return, somehow our physical, perished, decayed, decomposed bodies will somehow be supernaturally given new properties and raised to become a glorified body. Yes, that's what we believe. Resurrection is not an escape from the body. It is the redemption and glorification of God the body resurrection is not a way of speaking about the soul slipping away to fly away with Jesus resurrection is a way of saying there is a redemption and glorification of the body that is coming and let me tell you why this matters because the same God that created is the same God that will redeem and the same God that will redeem is the same God who created and God is not a God who creates one thing and says, eh, let's forget that, let's go here. We're going to follow this theme into the next section, the world to come. There's no point sort of saying, well, so are you saying resurrection bodies are these newly sort of glorified, redeemed bodies that are physical and spiritual and somehow new, yes? But then we're going to live in a spiritual heaven? Nope. Because the Creed says the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. So what is the world to come? What do we mean by the world to come? The phrase here literally means the life of the age that is coming. And the reason age is important is because it technically doesn't say world like cosmos. It says age like aeonos, like an eon, eons, the eon to come. Why does that matter? Because what God is doing is bringing a new era that's breaking in. You get a foretaste of that life right now. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. you got it. Fanny Crosby had it right. But what's coming is this whole age takes over. It becomes the world to come. Revelation 21 paints this picture for us. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned from her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with you. Man, mankind, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. See, there are several different ways we struggle with language to talk about it. Some people, Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, Scott McKnight does the same thing in his new book, Heaven Promise. A number of these guys may talk about it like there's a current heaven and then there's a final heaven. And so it might be helpful to think of it that way. There's a current heaven where, where those who, who are believers in Christ are resting in the presence of Jesus. They're with Jesus, but there's a waiting and there's a final heaven that Revelation gives us this glimpse into at the very end, this ultimate new creation, some people like to use the word heaven for both, Th- that may be helpful. Others of you say, I don't find it helpful, final heaven, first heaven, I... and so, so other people say, no, it's, it's heaven as in now, this paradise, this resting and refreshing place, sort of like, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it's sort of like um, um, the House of Elrond, you know, the place of refreshing and healing, but it's not the last stop, okay. That's the, that's the word, by the way, that Jesus uses to talk to the thief. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise, that refreshing place. Okay? But it's not the final. Uh, other people say, okay, so, so let's just call this one heaven, and then let's call this one the new heavens and the new earth, or new creation. That's fine. N.T. Wright, the British scholar, calls it there's life after death, and then there's life after life after death. <laughs> that may be too confusing. Whatever you find helpful, there are two movements to this two stages to this the picture that we get even of the saints in revelation is that they themselves are longing they're waiting have you ever wondered that hebrews talks about the great cloud of witnesses imagine that everyone with jesus already is looking over into human history here and saying okay jesus when when are you going to come and end this Vindicate the suffering of the martyr, all those who have been martyred in the Middle East and the Syrian Christians, or do something, now end it. Yes, they're resting with Jesus, but that is not yet the end. Now imagine this for a moment. Those of you that are parents, if you have a child who gets bullied on the playground at school, and you say, and their child says to the bully, now you just wait a minute, my dad's coming. Only you say it in a not so bratty voice. And then your dad comes, or, or you come, rather, if you're the parent, you come. And your child says, dad, this guy's been picking on me. He's made the playground just so miserable. I haven't been able to have any fun on this playground. And your dad says, oh, or you say, I'm really sorry to hear that. Hey, anyway, just get in the car. Let's go get some ice cream. How many of you know you're going to have one disappointed kid? What do you mean just get in the car and we'll have some ice cream? But isn't that the view of Christian hope that so many of us have? Have, Lord, this is terrible. There's justice. There's injustice. There's oppression. There's, there's, there's ruthless people that are, that are wreaking havoc on the earth. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Hey, how about this? I'll get you out of here. Come over to my place and we'll have some ice cream. And to the world, that's what our message of hope sounds like. Thin and rather unimportant. But that's not the image in the book of Revelation. It's not evacuation and compensation. I'll get you out of here, and then I'll make it up to you. That's not what the New Testament says. And it's certainly not the words of the creed. Evacuation and compensation. Get me out of here and make it up to me. But yet, how many of us grew up thinking about heaven that way? Instead, even the saints in heaven are waiting, and what are they waiting for? They're waiting for Jesus to come. Jesus to come, Paul says, and he will reign until all his enemies are under his feet. John says, and on that day, he'll wipe away every tear and death itself will be no more. That's like you, the parent, arriving on the playground and saying, oh, where's the bully? Let's get this taken care of. And he says, bully, you can't be around here anymore. Get out of this playground. And in fact, I'm going to remodel the whole playground. And you know what, son? Let's just hang out here and play. Because that's what God says. God says, listen, I know this world has been a place of sorrow and suffering and death and injustice and poverty and disease, but you know what? When I come to reign, I will banish every disease, every sin, every sickness, every pain of death, and I will make the whole world new again, and then we're going to live there. We're going to live there. We're going to move in there. The book of Revelation says the dwelling of God will be with mankind. It's not God saying, let's get out of here and go to my place. It's God saying, let's make this all new again, and let's live here. The new world to come, the world to come, is not simply this world restored. It's this world completed, perfected, and transformed. It's not just a return. Some, uh, the other mistake we might be tempted to make is to say, oh, we're going back to Eden That's not John's vision. It's not simply a garden. It's a garden with a city. It was, you might say, the vision that it was always supposed to be. That in Genesis 1, you have this image of of God saying, here's the garden, now tend it, multiply it, cultivate it, let civilizations come from this, but they never did it. They cultivated sin and evil and rebellion instead. And in Revelation, Jesus says, I am the true Adam. I am the true firstborn of all creation. And I'll complete what Adam could never complete. I'll make this creation completed, renewed, transformed. And this garden city is what Revelation pictures, imagines. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Isn't it just arguing about silly details? who, who Who cares, right? It matters because Christian hope rests upon the promise of God. Christian hope rests upon the promise of God. Everything we believe about our hope is a statement about God and who He is. So if Christian hope is evacuation and compensation, then God's like Grandpa or Santa Claus. But if Christian hope... It's about bodily resurrection and the life of the world to come. Well, hang on just a minute. There's something about God I'm now seeing. The first is this, that God does not forget his promise or scrap his projects or abandon his people. It means that every joy and pleasure that you've known in this age will be completed and perfected in the age to come. Every joy and pleasure you've known in this age will be completed and perfected. All of this, in the C.S. Lewis phrase, this will have just been the shadowlands. Shadows of that which is coming. Wonderful hints, but not quite the real thing. I have a dear friend who's three and a half years ago lost his wife in a car accident. We met for two years, we'd met every week. And then after that, we started to meet once a month. And every time he'd ask me questions, what's it going to be like? What's it, what's, I'd say, I, I don't know for sure the details of what it's going to be like. But I do know that every good and beautiful thing that you enjoyed here will be completed and perfected in the age to come. Years ago, years ago, some friends had three boys and they were pregnant with their fourth and it was going to be a girl And they were super excited about it, but in the seventh month of the pregnancy, something went terribly wrong. They ended up giving birth to a stillborn child. Tragic. If you've ever experienced that or walked through that, it's absolutely devastating. And we were with them in the hospital, wept with them for days and weeks, leading up to it, after it. And they said to us, and someone had shared with them, they said, you know, your desire for this daughter, it's not that it's been... Denied It's been delayed Now I said at the wrong time That could be trite But said in the right moment Rings true Because the other thing about God's promise Is that God's promise Is always, only And ultimately more Always, only And ultimately more Remember Paul's phrase He says where sin abounds Grace abounds more You remember Jesus' phrase when he says, if you who are sinful know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more is your Father in heaven? See, the prosperity faith preachers, they got one thing right and one thing terribly wrong. What they have right is that the heart of God is more, that the heart of God for you is always and only more. What they have devastatingly wrong is that they believe it is now. And that more looks like a Lexus or a private jet. Instead of saying, no, 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 I mean more. I mean the prosperity gospel is not good news enough. (laughs) Because it has you satisfied with stuff. But the how much more of grace is that every joy here will be completed and perfected there. God's promise is always, only, and ultimately more. Now you're listening to this, and you're saying, "Glenn, I want to believe this, but how? How? How could this possibly be true? How can I? How can I count on this? You told us, Glenn, that hope has a what? I like the what, but I don't know the who and the how. And here it is. It's Jesus." Jesus is the one who will bring this about. How? Because Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. See, the resurrection, my friends, changed everything. The resurrection was God's announcement to the cosmos. It was God's announcement in the middle of the world that says, you know what? Death has had an unbelievable winning streak for thousands of years. But now it ends. Now it ends. The resurrection was God's announcement that sin will not be the end. Your mistakes will not be the end. Death, disease, none of it will have the last word. God gets the last word. Resurrection is God's announcement that victory is coming for those who are in Christ. That's how Jesus, because Jesus is risen. If Jesus was just the one who went to the cross, we'd say, well, that's great, good teacher. Terrible, tragic ending, though, isn't it? But Jesus in the tomb, the father looks out and says, okay, are you ready? I'm about to make my most dramatic statement of all. And out of the grave, he called his son, not abandoning him to decay. And because Jesus is risen, our hope is secure. See, our promise, God's promise, is secure because God raised Jesus from the dead. God's promise is secure because God raised Jesus from the dead. I read recently a story of a couple in their 50s, and their adult child was in the hospital suffering a long and painful disease. And finally came to the moments of her last breath, weeping around the bed, trying to stay as long as they can. And finally the moments come where the mother and father, who have now outlived their child, something that no parent wishes to do, walking out of the hospital. And the mother turns to her husband just in, in, in absolute grief and says, remind me again what we believe. Grief has a way of doing that, doesn't it? And listen, if you're in a season of grief and you feel floundering in your faith, just know that maybe it's enough to know that you're in good company. Grief does that. It makes the sky gray. You don't know what's going on. And somehow in a a gift of grace given to her husband, the father of this child, he's he's walking silently next to her. She says, remind me again what we believe. He turns to her and he says, The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Sometimes that's all we have. I don't know why this happened. I don't know how we're going to make it through. But I know the tomb is empty. And if the tomb is empty, if Jesus is risen, then everything is different. We'll grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And as Paul said, if only for this life we have hope, we of all people are to be pitied. But it's not just for this life. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The funny thing about this Greek sentence is it actually doesn't say we, it says I. It says I look. And I know the church wants us to confess a we so that we can be in it together, and that's powerful. But I think the church fathers wrote I because they know that hope must be so deeply and personally carried. It's good and fine to say, yeah, that's what Christians believe, but my prayer for you is, will you carry this? Will you carry expectation in your heart? Will you carry the ache and longing hope that can sometimes feel like heartache because you know it's not right right now, but hope that nonetheless pushes you forward and says, I wait with eager expectation for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And maybe when you start to carry that hope in your heart, you can say, like that Anglican Bishop Leslie Newbigin in England so many decades ago said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's what we believe. Amen.